0: Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. All right, hello, ED ECMO. This is Zach Shiner, and today I have a huge announcement. This is, this is something I've been uh, kind of hoping for, and, and these two guys have been working on this so diligently. And so uh, today I have with us John Marinell and Darren Brody. Welcome to ED ECMO, guys. Thank you. Hey. Yeah, good to be here. So I, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, tell me, what's the big news? Well, the big news is that we have developed a
1: pre-hospital ECMO program that we are and have had live for about a month, and uh, although we have had no candidates, I think we have nailed down the process. And with the help of Albuquerque Fire Rescue and uh, and the UNM Critical Care and UNM Emergency Medical Services groups, we have uh, nailed down the ability to do pre-hospital ECMO and offer it to people in the city of Albuquerque.
0: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You guys have brought pre-hospital ECMO to the United States. This is something we never thought could happen. Uh, but your diligent work has paid off, John. I mean, you got for all those of you out there. You know, John. He's he's been at Reanimate. He has come here on the podcast before, and uh, and Darren has been also involved with so many different things for the emergency medicine services. But to have brought this to make this happen, this is incredible. Strong work, guys. Thank you. So tell me about it. How did this process start? How did you? How did you bring this to fruition?
1: Well, you know, I think there's two sides to this. Uh, there's the there's the critical care side of it, and I, I can go into that um, in just a second here, but Darren Brody uh, has really nailed down some unique aspects of University of New Mexico and Albuquerque City, Albuquerque Fire Rescue, that have made this possible. I don't know, uh, uh, Darren, if you want to talk about that. Well, sure.
2: I think the way that... I conceptualize this as you know. There's there's a whole bunch of pieces that have to be in place to be able to do pre-hospital ECMO, of course. And you know whether we're you know it's luck or otherwise, you know we have those pieces here. And when I'm describing this to our EMS crews when we're doing the training, um, the things that I say have to be in place, and some of these are very much EMS specific. And then John can touch on the ones that aren't. I mean, first of all, you have to start with a sophisticated EMS system that is already doing high-performance uh, CPR and cardiac arrest management. You have to have EMS leadership that is you know, inspired and, and can see the potential for a program like this. It really helps to have a presence of doctors in the field from the outset. So, I mean, we're already with our EMS consortium and fellowship and field response program, we attend about a third of the cardiac arrests in the metropolitan area already. So having a dock there is, is not a stretch for the crews at all. You need to have this close relationship between EMS and the hospital, and, and we have that. You need to have EMS providers in your system that are open to new ideas, and our providers have just embraced this like you wouldn't believe. You have to have an eCPR program at the hospital because you got to be able to have a place to take them. And John can speak to that. You have to have ECMO cannulators that are willing to go out in the field and do this, which we have. And John can speak to that. And, and the, the last piece is that you can't, in my mind, wait for perfect. Because, um, I mean, there's all sorts of ways you could conceive of this being done perfectly. And we've had to come up with a way that we think is safe and appropriate, but by no means perfect.
0: Yeah, I mean, this. you guys have the perfect scenario, I think, in a lot of ways. And uh, having a city where New Mexico, the University of Mexico is such a strong hospital, such a, a, a dominant presence, uh, and such an integral part of the EMS, like that, I think, had had a big effect on, on the ability to do this for the first time in the United States. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, I think that we have such a good relationship. Um, you know, being the, the critical care program at university of New Mexico is, uh, is, you know, we're 35 critical care doctors now or even more, and uh, of that, there's a very large emergency medicine critical care group of which I think, and Brian Westman from WashU may argue with this me, but I think we are the largest EM critical care group in the nation. And of that, we have a strong bent on doing EM critical care aspects, which again, pre-hospital would be. And the cannulation service we have at University of New Mexico is staffed primarily by EM critical care. So we do all of the ECMO cannulations whether you're in hospital or out of hospital, but all of the VA and VV cannulations are done by critical care with um, six uh, uh, EM critical care and uh, two non EM critical care. One is a surgeon, one is medical critical care, and so um, with that group, we are really able to offer uh, you know 24 seven and now out of hospital uh, cannulations.
0: Okay, so Darren, take me through uh, uh, take me through the call to initiation of ECMO. How does that occur in your system?
2: So the first thing that we put into place was criteria to transport appropriate patients to the hospital for ECPR. So that went into place first. The crews were trained to recognize, appropriate candidates for ECPR. But even more thoughtful is that our fire department leadership and Kim Pruitt, who is one of our uh, EMS faculty members, who's the medical director for Albuquerque Fire Rescue, trained the dispatchers to recognize potential ECPR candidates. So dispatch is already... At the time of dispatching a cardiac arrest, alerting the crews to the potential that they have a patient in the right age range who has had a witnessed arrest and there are bystanders willing to do CPR. So, what we've then done is, you know, we have sort of this idea that the patients to get ECMO at the hospital really should be there from the time of arrest. We're saying, and I realize there's lots of You've discussed this at length on the podcast in the past and probably in the future, but we're aiming here for about 35 minutes to get to the door, figuring there's a little bit of a fudge factor there. So the crews, when they're alerted to a potential ECPR patient on days, Monday through Friday eight to five, when we've had the the unit staffed, if the crews, if we anticipate that that distance isn't going to make it in time, then we activate our pre-hospital ECMO team simultaneously. So they go out at the exact same time as the cardiac arrest response from the local district would go out so that we're, you know, we're heading there the same time that the crews are getting there to start their initial resuscitation. And our, we have an ECMO unit, the fire Albuquerque fire rescue has dedicated a older rescue to us for this purpose. And it's parked at, the fire station closest to University Hospital, with all the equipment essentially on board that we need, and John can speak to that. And at the time of a the dispatch, they they know each day who's on call. They go to the hospital. They pick up the, the cannulator at the bus stop, basically. Hopefully, they'll get the right guy, and uh, you know, not somebody else at the bus stop. They head to the scene. At the same time, the local district crews and uh, Albuquerque Ambulance are headed to the scene. We're also sending an EMS supervisor to the scene, and we're sending an EMS
1: physician to the scene.
0: Okay, and uh, touch back again. What is your inclusion criteria?
1: So our inclusion criteria is less than seventy-five years old, uh, less than five minutes of no flow time. Uh, again, a witnessed arrest, no chronic liver, kidney. Or um, or lung disease and um, no obvious trauma. I mean, you know, kind of our general in hospital uh, ECPR type criteria.
0: Bystander CPR.
1: Bystander CPR again. Let, no less than five minute no flow. So yeah, bystander CPR.
0: Okay, and, and rhythm. Does it defactor factor in rhythm? So
1: initial rhythm that is um, anything but a systole, basically.
0: Okay. P-A, yeah, but one weekend. of the things
1: we found is, uh, you know, if you get shocked from VFib into a systole or from VTAC into a systole, we discount that as being true a systole and we would still put that person on. Uh, and that's that was some research we did that basically the initial shock rhythm going into a systole is, uh, does not change really the outcome from VFib. So.
2: And one of the things that I would add, Zach, is. We we've, In a typical kind of fire model, we front load the response, and there's lots of opportunities to cancel that response as more information becomes available. One of the other progressive things that we do in Albuquerque is, in addition to the EMS docs having ultrasound, and in some cases TEE, our paramedic supervisors with the fire department all perform cardiac, transthoracic ultrasonography. So... There's lots of opportunities in those PEA arrests for somebody to get on scene and say, "This is this is cardiac standstill," and we can, you know, cancel the team at that point.
0: Okay, so cardiac standstill gets you out. Does a level a, a duration of chest compressions get you out?
1: For pre-hospital, if we can get them on ECMO in 60 minutes from arrest, we do that.
0: Okay, all right. So you guys have pretty standard uh, inclusion criteria. Sounds all great. And these are also—I mean—they're—they're they're pretty broad inclusion criteria, um, especially for starting up a the first U.S. pre-hospital program. Awesome. And then, as you said, Darren, like that—that's—I think that's the model that that uh, Paris certainly does, and UK and in Australia is that you can get out of the the inclusion criteria at multiple places along the way if you feel that this patient is not a candidate. Okay, so now let's go on into, you said, you kind of talked about how we get there. How about the training of these docs that are going to be their cannulators? What, what went into that?
1: Well, so our cannulators are, again, our normal in-house cannulators. Um, in this case, we've kind of self-selected three of us who have been cannulating for the longest. One is a vascular surgeon, uh, Dr. Gugliani. One is Dr. Detmer and the last one is myself. We've been the ECMO cannulators for the longest at University Hospital. And we also had the most bandwidth uh, to kind of cover some more day stuff. We will roll it out to all of our cannulators over time. But we started off by having the three of us go, um, not only being adept at cannulation, but then go to the fire station. And we trained with all three fire crews um, that cover this ambulance. Um, uh, for uh, multiple weeks so that we could make sure we all kind of had an idea of what we were doing. We created a lot of um, infrastructure for training the paramedics. And you know what's kind of interesting, and, and I will probably go into this a little bit, but it's how we do this. We're doing this with hand crank ECMO. We don't actually have a full ECMO device on board the ambulance. We have a Quadrox oxygenator and a hand crank. And uh, we basically hook the circuit in and hook it to the patient, and we would start cranking at that point um, because you really don't need the machine. You need the hand crank uh, to get the flow. So, so. Uh, And so our training has uh, involved teaching them how to hand us the tubes, how to be a first assistant uh, to the firefighter. The firefighters are our first assistants, and then uh, to and to hand crank, and then we, we work on that with them.
0: And I hope a gym membership so that you guys can uh... – be able to crank for the next thirty minutes while they're going to well, the hospital. Well, again,
1: they're firefighters; they, they, they have like a, that built-in gym membership. They're
0: pretty good. <laughs> it's so awesome. Okay, so uh, so you got three cannulators. You guys have, and so you're you're basically for five days a week, you have now set up an ability to to have these docs either volunteer their time or get paid for. Um, being on call for just this, or do they have other responsibilities at the same time?
1: In general, the um, we'll take the cardiac ICU doctor is doctor number one, and then doctor number two is a guy who's just kind of volunteering his time, maybe at the hospital doing um, uh, administrative stuff that day. Occasionally, we've had the opportunity where, you know, like we'll go home and we would respond by private vehicle to the scene, but that is something that's still a little bit of a work in progress. Um, mostly, it's we're, we're we've been keeping with the the. It's all designed around having a single doctor response, um, but the um, the plan is uh, initially on these pilot trial to do two doctors.
2: Hmm. Right. I mean the the concept is sort of phased in. The right now trying to do two cannulators and an EMS doc and our trained. Um, firefighter. And then, you know, imagining that over time we could get to the point where one firefighter and one of the cannulators could, could do this. And then the EMS position is somebody who's there who can be sort of either logistics, running the code, can get there first and look at inclusion criteria, also trained to be a first assist, depending on whatever's needed.
0: Yeah, these are all uncharted, our uncharted waters. So, you guys are making it up as you go. Uh, awesome. I think for most of us, I, mean, we're, I bet many people listening to this are just going to be absolutely thrilled to hear this. And then the next question is going to be, okay, financially, how do I make this work in my place? Now that you have sort of laid out a system that this is feasible, uh, when you start talking about compensation is there a way for, at least in the United States, to make it so that the DRGs are still able to be uh, brought back to the hospital, or how does that work?
1: You know, Zach, that is a much more difficult question to a- answer. Um, when we're out with Lifeguard, which is um, the, the university helicopter program, we're credentialed around the state, and basically when Lifeguard takes possession of the patient, they we own the patient and they're in the university system. The Albuquerque Fire Rescue question is a little bit different, but we're still kind of taking ownership of the patient at that point, and um, and so um, you know it's it's uh, it, that's a that's a harder one for us to do, but we have gotten ECMO basically down to a fourteen hundred dollar flow circuit and a hand crank, which is six thousand dollars if you buy it you know de novo and. Um, and then the wires and cannulas. So we pretty much are cannulating most people for less than $2,000.
0: Right.
1: So, right. and you know, the thing that's really unique about how we have this set up is the, the process of going to the scene with the patient. So, you know, we or sorry, coming, we get to the scene with the patient, we get there and the patient is reverse loaded. So, you know, typically EMS vehicles, they would load the head in first. They're actually loading the patient foot first. And we have our ultrasound set up on the other side of the wall. While we're driving to the scene, we make what's called a, an ECMO uh, bean dip. Uh, it's, the, it's how we set up all of our ECMO equipment, like it's like a seven layer bean dip. And, um, and we have a checklist for how we do that, and I can explain it if you want. Um, but then the, the EMS providers are able to uh, keep running the code, managing the airway at the head of the bed from the front of, from, or from the open doors of the ambulance. While we're able to sit inside the ambulance and cannulate there, we're not cannulating on the ground like France is. Um, We're cannulating in the ECMO ambulance.
0: Yeah, and that seems to have some advantages and probably some disadvantages. I mean, just the the ergonomics of the space in there is pretty tight, yeah?
1: Actually, it's pretty nice. It's almost the same as standing next to the patient, although we're sitting next to the patient, uh, but like in the ER. And uh, we have everything set up. Again, the ergonomics of it uh, with this seven layer bean dip that Dr. Gugliani came with is essentially we reverse build what we need in a a large uh, basin, uh, our sterile equipment. And so then you initially start off with our micro stick is the first layer. Then the second layer gets down to our our amplatz wire. Our third layer gets down to our dilators. Our fourth layer gets down uh, to where the cannulas are, and then uh, we're all done, and so we've actually got it pretty slick now. The way that would work out,
0: yeah, I'm kind of imagining you know, almost like you're just repairing a laceration in quick care. Like you're just sitting next to the patient. Okay, you know, number one, let's and everything is set up perfect. You already got it kind of hardwired into the ambulance where things are going to be positioned. Uh, yeah, I can I can see that that actually working quite well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, and then the firefighters would hand us the. The tubes, and then they would start cranking. We hook a flow probe on, and um, we want, and So we have a flow probe in the ambulance, so we can determine flow. And then when they're cranking, if you crank about four thousand RPMs, and then every patient gets a two-liter bolus of saline or LR and uh, Epidrip started uh, just while we're going in, and then we'll um, we'll you know basically use the flow probe and uh, and go from there, and, and assuring that we've got good uh, good flow.
0: Super cool. Okay. So, so you're, not, you're not carrying blood and your, yep. your, your presser that you use is epi?
1: Yep, to start, yep.
0: Okay. and then, And there's no pre-hospital pressure monitoring, right? You don't have any arterial right radial art line or anything like that pre-hospital?
1: So we have the option of that. There's a little device called the compass pressure device monitor, which is actually used for placing central lines and it tells you whether you're in the artery or the vein. And we've just completed a study and our data will hopefully get published uh, soon, but that we can use that it's a little, like it's maybe like two inch long device that you can just screw into our art line and you'll guarantee you'll be able to get a mean arterial pressure and, um, and it doesn't need any bag of fluid and it doesn't need any of that stuff. And so, um, that, w- but that's a secondary thing for us. We actually have the ability to put in that line, but depending on how busy we are, we may or not just go with, uh the uh, flow probe, and we're actually also getting a cerebral oximeter for the ambulance Mm. so that we could know whether we're perfusing the brain, uh, like, you know, use that as a marker too, so.
0: Super cool. Okay, so let me see if I can kind of just take us through this, and then then we can fill in the gaps. A call comes into EMS. There is a potential uh, inclusion criteria for ECMO patient. At that point, uh, if we think that there is not time for the uh, ambulance to get there and determine the inclusion criteria, and the, the report suggests that it's an inclusion criteria, then both ambulances get sent at the same time, one with the ECMO doctor and one that has just the uh, what would respond to a normal EMS call. Is that correct? That's correct. And then that, that other ambulance has to go pick up the cannulator, either at the bus stop or somewhere in, in the vicinity, and then go directly to the scene. At that point, you then have another inclusion criteria check. You start with micropuncture. You dilate up to... What kind of cannulas do you have in the rig?
1: 15 French arterial, fifteen French arterial, 25 French uh, venous.
0: Okay. And do we dilate up to those? We uh, You have ultrasound guidance. We have a... a, a predefined area of what it looks like inside the rig we then start hand cranking the hand crank we do at about four thousand rpm we are don't have flow on most of these patients that or we don't have pressure monitoring on most of these patients but we have potentially the ability to do so they get two liters of fluids they get started on an epi drip and they get driven directly to university of new mexico hospital
2: that's pretty much it uh the and then the you know one of the pieces that we've had to practice in this is how do we actually, you know, great, you got to the hospital, but how do you actually unload and hand off a patient who is on hand crank system to, you know, change them over to the RotaFlow machine? You know, where do we meet the perfusionists? So we've actually had to, you know, practice that scenario as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So switching over to the RotaFlow. System would be part of it. Oh, do you use? Do you give heparin at the scene?
2: We do the. So we have at the back door of this this dedicated ECMO unit, we sort of have the resuscitation equipment that we need, um, so that because the the cannulators and the one firefighter paramedic that's dedicated to assisting that are all sterile in the back. Those of us that are kind of moving back and forth and helping with the resuscitation from. The tailboard, we have the, we have the heparin there, we have the bags of fluid there, we have the epi there. We also have preps back there, because the plan is, and we have this all checklisted, as you can imagine, but we actually have a, a whole pop-up tent that goes at the back door of the ambulance, and we strip the patient from the waist down, we prep the groins before we load them into the ambulance, and then... We have, so that's kind of all choreographed so that when we, and we have to make sure that the IV line, if for example, if it's in a tibial IO that we have access to that up at the door and then, then the patient gets moved into the unit and they can go straight to an additional prep if they need it, um, or straight to draping.
0: So cool. So cool, Darren. All right, so anything else? Any other things that you could, would be helpful for people out there listening that are thinking about starting in their city a pre-hospital ECMO program? Darren, what are things that you've learned?
2: Well, the obvious is, you know, there are, you, it just like any, you know, any project, you always think there's more people out there um, that would benefit from this. And, you know, the, it's been a little, a little frustrating to be on call this long and, and not have the right patient. Um, but we know we started this program because there were very specific patients that um, we felt we could have impacted positively, but they just couldn't get to the hospital in time. And so we know those patients are out there and we just have to be patient. But I would say that's the single the single biggest thing is, you know, be beware of of overestimating the, the potential cases.
0: Yeah, um, John. Basically said that you guys have stamped out cardiac arrest disease in all of New Mexico as a result of this program.
1: Uh, yeah, I feel like we've already <laughs> proven that it saves lives. You're right.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, you know, you know what I would say, Zach is um, one of the 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 things that has been most important for having a program like this is, and I think Darren alluded to is the fire department relationship, and then having a group of cannulators who are willing to. To stretch themselves uh, to the to to go into the community and try this and kind of you know the concept of the hand crank. I know I brought that up with Leon Olama uh, when he was out here lecturing, and he was like, "What are you crazy?" And it's like, well, Albuquerque is a poor state or Albuquerque a poor city, and New Mexico a poor state. We're not going to be able to three cardio helps it's sitting uh, on the off chance this stuff happens. And so, to be able to get ECMO down and dirty, and you know we call the ECMO Crankmo because essentially we're putting them on ECMO and cranking, and we offer this is the same thing we're offering in hospital at night when we don't have an ECMO specialist. I mean, if we have a person on ECMO in the hospital, then we can offer that um, you know we can offer twenty four seven ECPR with an ECMO specialist, but if we don't have an ECMO specialist in town in hospital to turn the machine on. We offer this same crankmo in hospital, and the charge nurses in the ICU have been trained to hand us the tubes and initiate the cranking. And, you know, over the last six months, we've had to hand crank four people at the university, not for eCPR, but because they ECMO machine, one thing or another, whether it's on transports. So, you know, to, when CPR first started, they didn't use a Lucas, and when ventilation started, they didn't start with a ventilator, they started with an Ambu bag. So why start with the hundred and twenty thousand dollar device when you can start with the six thousand dollar device, and um, and then bring more people in, and and the hand cranking works just great as long as you can monitor the flows. So,
2: and I would and I would add to that and emphasize what John said is we've made very sure that we're not bringing anything to the field that's not our something that we're offering in the hospital. We're just extending the. The ring and the window of patients that we can offer this to, but it's, we're bringing the same level of care that's at the hospital.
0: That is just so impressive. Just, what are the fails with the hand crank? What, what are the things that, that go wrong?
2: Well, we haven't really had, the times that we've had to use the hand crank, including some, some uh, tenuous transport situations... You know, it's it's been for us so far, knock on wood, it's it's been seamless. It's it's worked great.
0: That's so cool. I
1: don't I don't think nationally that there are a tremendous amount of fails with the hand crank Mm. that wouldn't fail with the full device. Like if the hand crank's not working, it's not because the hand crank's not working. It's because your cannulas are displaced or you're bleeding or whatever. It's not because of the hand crank.
0: Man, you're making me think about a whole bunch of different things. Like even about create, you know, pulsatility in your in your ECMO circuit has always been thought of as potentially beneficial. You could do a pulsatility with a hand crank. <laughs> okay, well, uh, guys, this is, I mean, just mad kudos to you guys. You have brought something to the U.S. that I have hoped for for a long time, and, uh, and you have did it. You successfully did it. Now we just got to get some patience, and I think it's just a matter of time before this stuff starts working, and you and you dial in the kind of the places how to do this best, and all that, and and the rest of us can also benefit from just seeing your experience and as precedents for us when we go to our our county systems and our hospital systems, and we and we ask for certain things that hey, New Mexico can do it. Why can't we? So thank you so yeah. much.
1: Yeah, happy to. And then, you know, the, the, the thing I would also add is that, you know, the, um, we, we could send you and send to your listeners um, if, uh, for your website if you wanted to. We could have like kind of a picture of the chili dip or the bean dip, uh, uh, how we set that up in the back of the, um, of the fire rescue so that they can maybe see how we've set it up. And, uh, you know, we're always happy to have people take what we do and, and, and grow on it. so
0: Awesome. Yes, I'll put it up on the site, and uh, and I'd like to get a picture of that ECMO ambulance as well. You got it. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, from EDECMO, ECMO, John Marinero, Darren Brody, University of New Mexico, the first pre-hospital ECMO system in the U.S. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Zach. Thank you.